Take your Bibles and open to Matthew 21. Our text is Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Matthew 21, chapter 21, verses 38 uh, through 32. This morning, we're going to see another portrait of Jesus. And we, we, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. We're going to see another portrait of Jesus today. And this is a, a, a beautiful a portrait of Jesus and an interesting one. Jesus had a tendency to press the issue. He, he wouldn't always. Sometimes he would be indirect. Sometimes he'd be direct. But he had a tendency to bring things to a head and press the issue. In this part of his life, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. He's not dying by accident. He knows he's going to die. He's going to contribute to things that he knows are going to bring his public execution. He's bringing things to a head. He's pressing the issue. He's pushing the buttons. He's doing what he knows is going to result in the end of his earthly life before the crucifixion. The portraits of Jesus in the Gospels are fascinating. Sometimes Jesus is strategically indirect. Sometimes he's very gentle. Sometimes he's patient. Sometimes he's bold and confrontational. He's going to get real bold and real confrontational here in the next couple of chapters as we go over, as we see what Jesus does on his way to the cross. In particular, the way that Jesus addresses the religious establishment of his day. We're going to, this is chapter 21. He's going to have three confrontations in chapter 22 with the religious establishment of his day. They're going to confront him. He's going to confront them. And then in chapter 23, he's going to go directly at the Pharisees and the scribes in particular because they were the big ruling party. And it's amazing what he's going to pronounce woes on them. It's also a pretty serious matter in Matthew chapter 23. But today we arrive at a place where Jesus is responding to Jesus responding to a question that he was asked. His authority was challenged. And what, what authority do you have? Why would they challenge his authority? They challenge his authority because he cleansed the temple. That's that gentle euphemism that we use for turning over all the tables in the temple and running out all the money changers in the temple. Another one of the Gospels said he braids a whip to, whip to do this. It was a violent act. And so he's going in the temple like he owns the place. And so they say to him, why are you acting like you own the place? And he basically says, as a matter of fact, I do own the place. And I don't like what you're doing in my father's house. That's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you made it into a den of robbers, a cave for thieves. And so he takes charge. And he's very bold. And so they challenge his authority. What authority do you have to do this? This is where he is indirect. He's going to get really direct. But initially he's indirect. And so what he does in rabbinic form is... Jesus then says, well, I will answer your question if you answer my question. Remember this? And he asked them a question about John the Baptist that they're afraid to answer. So now they're going to be indirect, right? They're afraid to answer the question because it would be politically bad for them to answer the question. So they don't answer the question. So he says to them, since you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. But then what he does is he tells three stories that answer the question. And these three stories are... Um, an indirect, direct way for Jesus to really push the buttons, for him to really press the issue. He's going to tell these three stories. Warren Wiersbe, writing about these three stories, says that Jesus uses three, these three stories to prove that the Jewish religious establishment of the day is rejecting the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
In the first story, it's the father's command that's rejected by the sons who won't work in the field. In the second story, the son himself is killed by the wicked vine dressers. In the third story, Wearsby says it's a picture of the Holy Spirit drawing people to himself. In the wedding feast, Wearsby says that he is, Jesus establishes that the Jewish religious leaders have rejected the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus draws attention to that to them publicly by stories in their face and and actually gets more and more intense until he has confrontations with them and then he pronounces woe on them. So what I'm saying is this. This is the setting of our little story, the little happy story that Jesus tells. It starts kind of light. It gets pretty heavy. But what is Jesus doing? He's doing the most important thing in the entire world. He's pressing the issue about who he is. This is still the most important issue in the entire world. Who is Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Him? Is He your King? Is He your Lord? Do you believe in Him? Do you accept Him? Does your life appear, if we would follow you and look at your life, would we be able to tell by looking at your life that you really were justified by faith in Jesus Christ? This is the issue. This is the issue Jesus presses. Now, Jesus pressing this issue, it's obvious that He's pressing this issue not just for the sake of carrying forward his redemptive plan, but always in this last week of his life, he's completing the, he's completing the training of his disciples. So you understand that Jesus is pressing this issue forward. Who do, who do men say that I am? Who do you think I am? What are you going to do with me? What do you believe about me? And he's basically saying to his disciples, this is what I expect you always to be doing. Indirectly or directly, through the good works that you do, through the questions that you ask, through the stories that you tell, through the prayers that you pray, you're always pressing the issue. You're always pressing the people in your life toward the major question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you accept the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary alone for your salvation? Or are you going to be a religious person that does a lot of talking about religious things, but when God tells you to do something, you don't do it. And you don't believe in John the Baptist, and you don't believe in me, Jesus. You don't believe in the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. So that kind of sets up this story, and this is a brief story, again, found in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it. And he went. Then he came to the second and he said, Likewise. In other words, he said to him, Go and work in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Now Jesus asks a question. So you understand what's happened so far. They've challenged the authority of Jesus. And Jesus has asked them a question they can't answer. So he says, I'm not going to answer your question. And then he tells them this story. But he says, first, I want you to think about this. Think about this. Then he tells them a story. Now he's going to ask them a question. So if you don't mind me saying so, can I remind you, Jesus is the ultimate hero of storytellers everywhere. Because Jesus knows how to kind of set the hook. Jesus knows 
how to create audience participation. Amen? I just did it. See that? I see to say amen. Yeah. He knows how to create audience participation. By the way, it is my responsibility to preach and your responsibility to participate. Just saying, okay? So he, thank you. So he, so he says, so which, which of the two did the will of his father? He asked a question. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now you may not be tracking with this yet, but what he does is brilliant because he actually gets them to condemn themselves. He gets them to condemn themselves. The father says to one, go and work. And the, and the one says, I'm not going to go work. But then he eventually does. And he says to the other one, go and work. And he says, I'm going right away. You know me, I'm the obedient son. But he never goes. Then he says to them, which of them obeyed? And the answer is the one that eventually went and did what he said. And it's obvious that's not you, is what he's saying to them. The religious establishment of the day, the average Scribe and Pharisee. Not all of them, but most of them. So then in verse 31, it says, Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Here comes the interpretation of the story. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. I think he was pushing their buttons. What do you think? I think he is pressing the issue. What do you think? I think he's making a point. Sometimes people say, Pastor, I think you told that story to make a point. I'm like, hello, of course I did. That's how it works. You ask questions and you tell stories to make specific points. You move to the head of the class. Jesus says in, in, in verse 31, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you, and actually the rendering might be, they take your place in the kingdom of God. Tax collectors and harlots are going to take your place in the kingdom of God. Now, it, when you say tax collector and harlot here, obviously in first century Palestine, they, you, you know, I don't need to tell you the story, how tax collectors were traitors, they were hated. They were despised. People to eat with tax collectors. You don't like tax collectors and hang out with prostitutes, unless, of course, it was in private. You, you wouldn't, wouldn't be there in good, you know, good company. You wouldn't spend time with tax collectors, tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus boldly says to them, they're going to take your place in the kingdom. They're like, the question would have been, huh? Why? I mean, I'm a good observant Jew. I'm a religious person. I'm a leader. I'm a religious leader. I never miss temple worship. I give sacrifices. I keep the law. Why? That would be the natural question. And so he answers verse 32, for John came to you. Now he's going to John the Baptist again, right? So you know, this story is a response to the question for earlier about him bringing up John the Baptist. It's a response to that. In verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness. Basically, John came to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. He said when John came and he preached, there were tax collectors and harlots who believed. And when you saw them believe, it should have made you want to repent, but you didn't believe even then. So he made it very clear. 
I have some observations I want to give you about pressing the issue. The first one is this. Talk is cheap. That's really what Jesus is saying. Talk is cheap. The son says, hey, I'm going to go serve you. The, the son that says, I'm going to go serve you, but he never goes and he serves. Jesus is saying, I hear you talk, but it doesn't count. I see your religion, but it isn't real. You make a profession of faith, but there's no works in your life that prove that you are sincere. I got a picture there of Phil the fisherman. Microphone's not working. Did I do something wrong here? Let's do a little check on this because I'd like to be able to move around. Everything okay up there? Can you hear me now? How are we doing? Can you hear me? I'm going to yell real loud. Just isn't working. No? It's not, not me? I've got to stay here. I'm going to be like chained to the pulpit today. So this is going to take me a couple of hours longer. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Glad you're laughing. Picture of Phil there's in Phil Garvin. He's a friend of mine, and he's a fisherman, and he's a, he's a witnesses all the time. And I've told you Phil's question before. Do you remember the question that I told you that Phil always asked? The question goes like this. Is eternal life a free gift, or is it something you would have to earn? I've asked some of you this question, really, on your way to faith, right? Is eternal life a free gift, or is it something you would have to earn? Now, intuitively, the answer is going to be what? You've got to earn it intuitively. Like, are you kidding me? Something as valuable as eternal life, that would be something you would have to earn. Nobody's going to give you that, right? But, of course, you're, you don't want to trust your intuition. You want to read your Bible. My friend Phil follows up that question with this question. If you earned it, who would get the credit? Isn't that a brilliant question? Okay, so you say, is eternal life a free gift or something you would have to earn? And intuitively say, well, it would be something you would have to earn. Then Phil says, okay, then if you earned it, who would get the credit? What would the answer be? Are you guys paying attention? Yeah, you would, you would get the credit, right? You would get the credit. So you would go through life going, I earned eternal life. I earned eternal life. Some, anybody think that sounds a little weird? Yeah, that isn't right, right? You're not going to be able to do that. You can't live a life to, to, you can't live a perfect life and earn eternal life. This is why the Bible teaches what we call Listen to this now because the devil doesn't want you to hear it, okay? Justification by faith. I'm going to say it in another way. Listen because the devil doesn't want you to hear this. A lot of people are going to hell because they just can't hear this in their hearts. So listen to what I'm telling you. This could change your life and everybody who comes after you and your neighbors and lots of other people. God wants to give eternal life as a free gift. His son Jesus already paid for it on Calvary. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you can be given the gift of eternal life. You don't earn a gift. You receive a gift. God wants to give you the gift of eternal life when you believe that Jesus is who He said He is and did what He said He did. So you don't have to go to church a whole bunch of time to get saved. You don't have to be baptized a bunch of time to get saved. You don't have to give a lot of money in the church often to confirmation or baptism or catechisms or any of those things. Those are works that are good, but they don't save you. You get saved when you believe and put your faith and trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Get it? The devil doesn't want you to get that. But when you do, it's going to set you free. Imagine then what your life is going to be like. Instead of thinking, I've got to earn God's favor and I'll never know if I'm really saved until I die. You can know that you are born again right now. These things have been written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not bragging. It's bragging on Jesus. You see, you didn't do it. He did it. You get that? Isn't that cool? 
So these are the questions that Phil asks on the street. He leads people to the Lord all the time. And it's based on many passages of Scripture. Here's an example. The wages of sin is death. You get what you deserve, you die, you go to hell. But the gift of God, you see it's right there. It's what? So is eternal life a gift or is it something you have to earn? Say it loud. It's a gift, church. Satan doesn't... Friends, could you explain what I just explained to you to somebody else? Could you... Do you understand what happens if you love on somebody a little bit and then you get a chance to tell them what I just told you and their entire life changes? When my dad got some sailors, got my dad apart up at Great Lakes Naval Air Station those years ago, and, and even though he was a religious guy and he'd gone to church and he sang in the choir and he lit candles and all of that stuff, he wasn't born again. When those guys, those sailors up at Great Lakes Naval Air Station explained this simple truth to my dad. It changed his life and our lives, our whole family. Our whole family. We're messed up, but before Jesus, we, had, we were a serious train wreck. But Jesus Christ came into our life and started to save one after another. And that's the way it was with you, right? When you understood this, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why they named the church Evangel. Because we are good news Baptist church. We're not bad news Baptist church. We're good news, Baptist Church. We are evangelists, every one of us. You join this church, you become an evangelist. Isn't that cool? If you can explain that to somebody, somebody, I mean, I can't explain it. Okay, if you can take a track that explains it and love somebody, bake them cookies and give them, then you're kind of indirectly giving them this message. If you invite somebody to this church and somebody talks like this and you're a part of that, that's pretty exciting. I could talk about that for a long time. But you know what? Talk is cheap, right? Jesus says the people that... So what I'm trying to say is this. We are not saved by works. I'm going to talk about works in a minute, but I want to say this not saved by works thing first. I'm going to show you this in the Bible a few places just so you really get it, because Satan doesn't want you to get this. Ephesians 2.89, right out of the Bible. For by grace, can you read it with me? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Read it. It is the... Is that cool? It is what? It's the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Get it? Who would get the credit? If you earned your salvation, you get the credit. But you can't earn your salvation. If Jesus died for your salvation, then you brag on Him, not on you. And it is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Right there in the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. It says there, But to him who does not work, but believes on Him, who justifies, makes him as if they were without sin, justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. And in Romans 5.1, don't you love this one? Therefore, having been justified by works, by faith, but belief, right? Justified by belief, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace with God this morning. If you don't already have peace with God, you can have peace with God this morning. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that every one of your black, filthy, dirty, shameful things is under the blood of Jesus and completely forgiven. You can know that right now by believing that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for your sins, shed His blood for your sin. When you put your faith and trust in that for your salvation, you pass from death into life, you're born again. Now some of you are going, Pastor, I know that. Well, then go tell somebody. Pack a pew, folks. Go get them now. There's sinners everywhere you look. Tell the story to somebody. Let them know. If they're not listening to you, do good works until they listen. So, so that's, we just believe that, right? We all believe. This church believes what the Bible says. Justification by grace through faith alone. You don't get saved by works. 
So you might ask the question, okay, now then where do the works come in? Do works come in? Are works important? Does the Bible talk about works? What is the place of works if it's not for our salvation? If it's not works before the cross, what about works after the cross? If it's not works before I get saved, what about works after I get saved? Well, that's kind of the whole point of getting saved. Then you do good works by the power of the Holy Spirit after you save, because you're saved, not in order to get saved. Are you guys getting this? Is it clear? Because Satan doesn't want you to get this. I can't tell you how many times I've described this simple thing to people, and they are completely spiritually blind. I'm in a hospital one day calling on a lady, and she's laying in a hospital bed, and she's struggling to understand the gospel. And I'm explaining to her in the simplest terms that I can explain it to her, and she's just not getting it. I'll never forget this. I'm I said, let's just stop here for a minute, and let's just talk to God. And I remember standing there and saying, God, would you please open her eyes? Would you help her get this and see that she can be saved immediately right now by putting her faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and all of her sins will be forgiven? And I said, when we got done praying, I said, amen. She goes, I get it. I baptized her and her husband a few weeks later in our church. Got, we're Facebook friends. Heard it from her not too long ago. Still walking with the Lord. Because God opened her eyes. Some of you today, your life can be changed right here today before I quit preaching because you got this and you crossed from death into life. And it's like the thief on the cross. Remember, the thief on the cross goes directly to heaven, but he doesn't go to church first. He doesn't get baptized first. He doesn't learn any catechism first. He doesn't light any candles first. He doesn't do any rituals first. He's not a good card-carrying Baptist, but he goes straight to heaven because Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise because on the cross he believed on the salvation. So you can believe on the salvation and know that you're right with God. But if you do, let me tell you how you know there are going to be works in your life. Your life is going to change and all things are going to become new. And you're going to want to do good works. This is where the works come in. Not before the cross, but after the cross. That's why James said faith without works is what? Dead. There's no faith without If you don't have works, you didn't really have faith. But you're saved by grace through faith alone. So you don't brag on yourself, but you brag on Jesus. And then works come in. So remember, talk is cheap. You might say, well, hey, I'm, I'm a... I'm born again, and my life looks just like it did before I was born again, and it keeps going that way. Then, you know what I'm going to tell you? Talk is cheap. You really get saved, you get like a new heart. You, you, get, you don't laugh at the pastor, like when he's preaching and there's flies in his head. You don't laugh. Your life changes. You're different. You see what I'm saying? If you're laughing, this is terrible, right? I'm, I'm kidding about that, right? Candace, I'm just kidding. I never pick on girls when I'm preaching. She's having a good time down there. I saw that. So we're not saved by works, but you're saved if you're not saved, if there are no works. Listen to Ephesians 2. We read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let me read Ephesians 2, 10. You know this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but as soon as we're saved, good works start happening. We love good works. It, the Bible says in Matthew 5 and verse 16, we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. The good works come after you're saved. They start growing more and more. They're a little bit at the beginning, and they get more and more as you grow in the Lord. I love this passage. There's a little story about a lady who was alternately called Tabitha or Dorcas. I would have gone with Tabitha myself. But anyway, this woman, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36, was full of good works. And charitable deeds. She was that 
proverbial churchwoman that just was doing good all the time. She's commended for that. God actually raises her from the dead for this. But she's a good person. With, she does good works. After she gets saved, her life is full of good works. The Bible teaches that's the way it should be. If you want homework on this, if you were to take your Bible and you were to look in Titus and just mark in the, in the book of Titus, three short chapters of Titus, mark in there just before you read First Thessalonians this afternoon, mark in there how many times it says good works. God expects that to be a big piece of our church program. Church, a big piece of church program is simple. Do good things for people. And this happens in our church. Happens a lot. Happened a lot this week. Not programmed. Some of it was programmed. Some of it was planned. Some of it was organized. Lots of it was not programmed or planned or organized. It was just spontaneous. It was just organic. It was just the Lord stirring people's hearts up to do. I don't even know all of it, but I hear things. I hear things about what God's people do. And this is the best way to get the kingdom to come to earth in a proverbial sense, right? Heaven touches down where somebody does God's, uh, does good works in Jesus' name. And it could be as simple as a cup of cold water. You find somebody who's thirsty, you give them a cup of cold water. It could be as simple as listening to somebody while their heart is broken and they need somebody to talk to. You realize there are going to be people that are going to get up tomorrow morning and they're going to feel like nobody in this world loves them. And you may not be that sharp, but you can love them, can't you? You can listen to them. You can take time with them. I heard of a man who's without work. He's trying to make his way back to God. And somebody took his car and they completely fixed his car up and gave it back to him. No charge. I heard of a man that was alone and he was feeling lonely and hurting. And somebody in this church saw that and they said, why don't you come out to have a meal with us after church? And when he told me that story, this is good works. This isn't the works that save us. This is the works that come into our life after we get saved. Every Saturday morning, you know, there are people that come and take... Saturday morning is pretty important to me. Right? Saturday morning, you know, every, so that we can enjoy beautiful Christmas music, every Saturday morning in the fall, people come here and they spend a couple of hours working to put together that Christmas experience that you and I love so much and cherish and want to share with lost people. That's good works. That's why people do that. These people work all weekend and they got that one day there and they come, and they come back on Sunday and practice on Sunday night too. There are people that volunteer. There's people volunteering right now wondering when I'm going to stop talking. And they never know. Every week, you know, I'm just like, whatever. They, you know, it gets done, and they got to figure out how to make it work down there with the kids and, and with, the, with, the, with the teenagers. The trunk or treat really thrilled me. As a pastor, I'm allowed to say I was proud, you know, in the, in the right sense of the word. When I was here, I was, and it was cold, and it was kind of rainy, and it got kind of dark, but hundreds of people saw dozens of smiling faces. And I know that candy was costly. You guys spent some money on that and decorated your trunks. And you gave, you expressed the love of Jesus in the most beautiful way. Hundreds of sweet little kids saw Christians with smiling faces on Wednesday night. That was good works. That was good works. God is honored by that. You know what thrilled me? Every one of them got a little bag, got a bunch of stuff from our church, got a bunch of candy so they would leave Evangel with a sweet taste in their mouth. And they got a, 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 a CD of a message that I preach, that I lo- a story I tell on there. You will never find the bottom of God's love. You will never find. There are people, hundreds of people that came on Wednesday night because you worked hard and you did those good works. Hundreds of people got a story of God's love. Good works. That's a good thing. 
And that's what's been going on in this church for many years. We're not proud of that because God's the one who motivated that. Somebody moves and Christians come and help them move. Somebody works a full day and then on the way home, instead of going home and getting their feet up, they go to the hospital to visit a friend. Somebody sees a widow that doesn't have enough money to pay the electric bill, so they cut wood and they take it over and they drop the wood off. Somebody sees a single mother and her tires are bald and it's dangerous, and so they go and they buy four brand new tires and they put them on her car. This is good works. You know, you're listening to me in such a beautiful way right now. You know why that is? This is hitting your heart, isn't it? There's something real about that. There's something real about seeing a little child like open up a gift at Christmas time that's in poverty and, and to have an expression of the love of Jesus because we were created for good works. We're created for that. Isn't that awesome? We're not saved by good works, but as soon as we're saved, we get to do good works. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do good works. It's such a cool thing. Man, I could just go on and on, but i got a couple other points in my message. Second thing to see, the first is talk is cheap. So if you're really a Christian... You're not saved by works, but you're going to do works. Amen? You get it? Second thing, the worst are often the first with God. The worst are often... Why is that? You think, well, they're the religious people. They know the law. They have it all memorized. God says, you're out. And the prostitutes and the publicans are coming in first. Did you catch the irony of Matthew writing about this? What was Matthew? Publican. <laughs> Matthew, when he writes that, he's got to go, excuse me. Publicans and sinners are going to come into the kingdom before the righteous people are. Matthew, you know all his life he knew he was a publican. He was a sinner. Do you have that sense yourself? Are you here, here to encourage you today? You might have a shameful past. You might have a dark past. You might have guilt that still hangs over your head. You may have done some public things that are just a shame. You may just feel crushed by that. People know about it. Jesus knows about it too. And here's what he says. He says, if you have a sense of that crushing brokenness of sin, you are closer to the kingdom than a lot of religious people that I know. Isn't that beautiful about Jesus? The worst are often the first with God. That's what he says there in verse 31. And one other thing. These are things we should press. These are issues we should press. Press the issue. Talk is cheap. Press the issue that the worst are often the first with God. Press the issue that Jesus rejects religion that doesn't include repentance. He says in verse 31, John came to you in the way of righteousness. He showed you the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him. Task collectors and hearts believed him. When you saw it, you didn't afterward relent. It's a very similar word to repent in the original as well. Repent and believe him. Listen, please. It's not enough to just talk like you're a Christian and say Christian stuff. Go to church, occupy a pew. You know, that. it's not enough, right? If you have a new heart and you really believe, you repent, you turn from sin and you keep turning from sin to God. And your life is different. And there's a growing difference in your life. And Jesus says without it, he rejects religion without repentance. Can I tell you something quick? I gave you the example of Matthew, right? Were any Pharisees ever saved? Jesus goes after the Pharisees, man. These guys are bad news, right? He goes after the Pharisees. In 23, he's going to pronounce woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Were any Pharisees ever saved? Yeah, Nicodemus. This is the one I was thinking too. Three places in the book of John, you've got the trail of Nicodemus. What does God say to Nicodemus? Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He comes to talk to Jesus at night. Jesus says, you can be. He said, you must be born again, which implied you can be born again. 
And then he goes away like, hmm, thinking about that. Later on, he comes back and he defends. And somebody says, no Pharisees have believed in him, so he must not be the Messiah. And Nicodemus goes, some have. That's in chapter 7. Nicodemus was a Pharisee believer. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome. I kind of liked that when I saw that. Chapter 19, you get to the end, what happens? Nicodemus is still faithful to Jesus even after he dies. And they need to go get his body. Who does it? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. And in this sacred act of reverence for Jesus, this Pharisee, he goes and gets the body of Jesus and prepares it for burial. And his name is in the book, a believing Pharisee. So if you're a Pharisee today, there's hope for you. If you're a publican, a sinner, a prostitute, a stripper, a harlot, a drunk, if you're a child abuser, God forbid, there's help for you. There's hope for you. I don't care how dark or how awful or how filthy your sin is today. Even if you can't even ever talk about it and you never want to hear about it again. All sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm here to tell you today. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I would say thank you, Lord, for that. I would say thank you. Walter Wilson He had a friend named Charlie Johnson. I think it was in St. Louis. Don't hold me to that detail of this story. But he had a friend. His friend's son was named Charlie Johnson. And his friend was burdened for his son's salvation. So Walter Wilson, who was a doctor and who was also an itinerant speaker, he goes, I think, to this town. I believe it was St. Louis. And he looks up. Back then, you couldn't Google stuff. He looks up in the yellow pages. Charlie Johnson. He goes to his house. He knocks on the door. Are you Charlie Johnson? Yes, I am. He invites him in. They start to talk for a while. He tells him why he's there. And he discovers it's not the right Charlie Johnson at all. But they discover using the telephone that he's like on the west block and the other Charlie Johnson's on the east block. So he gets ready to leave. And he looks over and he sees that there's a Bible there. And he says to him, well, I'll tell you why I came. I, I came to talk to my friend about his, his, my friend's son about knowing the Lord. You must know the Lord. You have a Bible. And you know what the guy said? He said, you know, that's the craziest thing you should ask that because my wife and I got this morning and we just took that Bible and we were thinking, how are we ever going to know how to be right with God? And we actually got down on our knees and we prayed that God would send us somebody to show us how to be right with God. I kind of like that story. Walter Wilson, you can read all the stories of Walter Wilson and some old books. Get them on the Internet. That's what happens when you press the issue. That's what happens when you go around gently, directly, indirectly, however it works for you, with cookies, without cookies, pressing the issue. That's what happens when you press the issue of Jesus with people. you got loved ones that are really on their way to eternity, and you haven't pressed the issue, so press the issue. you got people that live on your block, and, and, and one day they're going to stand before God. Press the issue. Press the issue. You have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or brothers or sisters or moms or dads, and you don't know if they're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Press the issue. Talk to them about Jesus. Let them know that this means something to you. This is important. Last night, oh my, did I tell you it was my birthday yesterday. Yeah, it was my birthday yesterday. It was, I love all the attention that you get on your birthday. Gifts and food. Lois made me a meal and she made me my favorite cake and kids were nice to me. And last, last, uh, they're, they're nice to me every day, but they were especially nice yesterday. And then, um, last night was our meal and we kind of gathered around the table and uh, we have a tradition, which I love, which the kids write me a letter and they read me their letter out loud and they try not to, it's really bizarre because they try not to cry and the other kids make fun of them while they're reading it and it's really a mess, but in the whole mix of things, it's really a beautiful time. 
And so it was like a really super happy time for me last night. I was just sitting there thinking, how could a man be happier? How could a man in this world be happier than to have, like Psalm 129, uh, Psalm 120, a, a faithful wife and children all around the table who love you, and each one of them in their, in their letter that they either emailed me because they were married and they're not in town or they were there, every single one of them let me know that they wanted to be loyal to my God. That they wanted to be used of God to press the issue. Now we all got our stuff to work on, but when I realized that as we were just sitting there last night, I thought to myself, what more could a father ask for than that? And your father loves you. He delights in you. He watches every little piece of your life. He watches where you go. He watches what you do. He takes care of you. He provides for you. And he wants you to press the issue. It makes him glad when you do. And he's going to put people in your path. And he's going to give you just the right way to press the issue for them. So by all means, press the issue. There's an old kind of appellation carol. Ask pastor to come and lead it. And then I'll pronounce a benediction. Let's sing this little carol. It's kind of country. It's kind of hillbilly. But stand up and he'll, he'll tell you where it is. And we're going to sing Footsteps of Jesus.